Now, I'm not sure if you've considered it or not, but for all of us in the room, should Jesus tarry, this will probably be the century in which you will die. Comforting words, huh? Do you think you'll probably die in this century? Most of us will, will end our physical life this century. Here's an interesting quote by H.J. Brown. He says, Be bold and courageous. When you look back on your life, you'll regret the things you didn't do more than the ones you did. You will regret the things you didn't do more than the things that you did. We risk in the later years of life looking back and having only been able to glimpse the life perhaps that could have been. You know, doing what I do as a, as a pastor, I've, I've, I've had the privilege of being by the bed of a lot of folks that were dying and passing from this life onto the next. And without doubt, you, you get to have some very um, candid conversations with people to know when, they're, when they know. We all know we're dying, but there's one thing to know when it's like imminent and it wasn't a sudden death, but they know death is upon them. And in those conversations, it's very telling and you learn a lot because one of the things I've never heard anybody ever say is I wish I had a bigger house. I wish I had made more money or I wish I had more stuff. You know what you primarily hear? Stuff of the, of the real fabric of life, right? If I just, man, I wish I had, if I had more time with my kids or more time with my wife, I just wish I hadn't have done, you know, you just wishing for things that are gone, things that they didn't do as opposed to things that they didn't get to do. It's sobering, isn't it? One of the things that I get to do that keeps that in my mind often to assess my life and what am I doing and what am I spending my time on. So even, even tonight, you know, even in this moment, if we were to, were to take a step in the right direction and, and resolve to do some things, perhaps I just made a list. Maybe it's um, spend more time with family or exercise more or read more or eat healthier. Maybe it's continue our education or find a cause to defend, take up a hobby, enjoy the outdoors more, travel to places we've never been, tell someone we love them. Maybe it's become fluent in a second language, beginning immediately doing things and prioritizing things. Yeah, there are many things, aren't there? There are so many things that we could begin doing, things that have real meaning to it, substance to them, not just Illicit things are not bad things, but just good things. But what if we were to narrow it all down? If you could like boil everything down to simply one thing and concentrate it on the rest of your life. The question, what, what would that one thing be? And what would you think if I were to tell you that by doing this simple one possible thing, that every other important thing in your life would naturally fall into a line? In other words, out of the myriad of choices and possibilities, if you do this one thing and do it well and everything else will just begin to align itself up and a, and a priority list would develop. I bet you can guess what it is. It's a word we throw around so often. But if you could only do one thing and do nothing else, what would that one thing be?
You know what it is? You might want to guess. <laughs> Colossians 4.2. Paul says it like this. Colossians 4.2. He says, devote yourselves to what? Prayer. Now, many of us, you just turned me off right then. Oh, no. Another subject of prayer. Another message on prayer. We hear so much on prayer, ad nauseum on prayer. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So this thing of prayer was not like a suggestion, wasn't it? It wasn't, hey, maybe you ought to try praying. What's he say? He says, devote yourself to prayer. Strong word in the Greek. It's proskotero, and, it, and, it, and it's so strong, it says, to give oneself to continually, to devote yourself to something. That means it's not going to be a passing fad or momentary, spontaneity, doing something that you like. It says, devote yourself continually, giving yourself over to prayer. But by and large, if you've been in church for more than a couple of years, you know this, right? If we announce a prayer meeting, guaranteed to be perhaps the most least attended event in a church. Would you agree? I've seen it in ministry for a number of years. I mean, it just happens. Oh, it's just a, it's just a prayer meeting. We somehow have minimized this. But yet one of the greatest events in all of history came in a prayer meeting, which was called the Day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, it came out of a prayer meeting. The greatest things that's ever happened in the world were born out of people who devoted themselves to prayer. Great revivals, great moves of God, great things that happened. Even the cross itself was preceded by Jesus taking his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane for a prayer meeting. Yes, some went to sleep, but it was a prayer meeting, which would usher in what? The cross and the death of Jesus himself. So how many of you would honestly say that your prayer life could use some refreshing? You could say, man, I, I could stand to pray a little more than I do. Look at all right. We're all, we're all there. Listen, I am not here today to lay on any condemnation or shame. Because guess what? Condemnation and shame and guilt will never bring about the kind of prayer that the Lord is looking for out of you. you hear that? In other words, that's not the message of the Father to us tonight. Oh, crap, I'm not praying enough. So you feel bad and you set your alarm clock for, normally get up at 6, I'm going to set it for 5.30, and you get up with drudgery and you fall to your knees and, oh, God, I'm going to pray so you'll be happy with me. You realize that's not the kind of prayer the Father is looking for. That's not what he had in mind when he called us to this thing called prayer. And it begins with us beginning to ask ourselves the same question the disciples asked Jesus. And the question is found in Luke 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, I kind of put myself in that situation, a bunch of Jewish boys Raised in the Jewish faith, that's all they've ever known. Yet, they're observing Jesus do what? What's Jesus doing? He's praying. And what are they watching him do? Pray. So they saw something. They saw Jesus 
doing something that caused them to be curious, to actually want it. So they said, Lord, I teach us to pray because they were seeing Jesus do something that they would like to do themselves. Otherwise, they would have never asked the question. They were motivated. Well, this is the passage that contains what? Contains the Lord's prayer in it. And Jesus comes and says, okay, now pray in this way. What were the disciples seeing, you think? What were they seeing? What were they watching Jesus in his, because they understood prayer. They, were, they, they came up in the Hebraic faith. They, they understood the idea of prayer, but yet they saw something Jesus was doing that looked different from the prayer life they were used to. What do you think the difference was in one word? Relationship. They saw intimacy. And when Jesus taught them to pray, he said, pray how? In this way, what? He said, pray our Father. Not God, not Yahweh, not Jehovah. They said, Dad. Spoke of deep, intimate relationship. That was foreign to their religious mind. You see, perhaps many of us have more of a religious mind than we think we really do. That's why prayer doesn't feel like it should. And we're being invited into something far different and far more wonderful. See, a vibrant prayer life is oftentimes caught more than it is taught. It's difficult to teach somebody to pray so, so the, the, the disciples caught something here that they wanted to be taught how to do. The problem, if you try to teach something before something is caught, you miss the relationship part. Teaching is important, but some things need to be caught before they're taught. Taught's important, but caught needs to precede some things. And they call, I remember, even before I was born again at the, at the age of 12, and we were um, attending this little Methodist church in Decula called Hinton Memorial United Methodist Church. We arrived there, my mom and dad and I, we, we got to church for the, for the, for the uh, first time, got there for Sunday school. Um, they went to their class, and I went into my little class. We were there early. My mom was always early, so... Um, I was the only one there, sat in my class, 12 years old. Even the teacher wasn't there. So it came time for Sunday school. Well, the teacher never came, nor nobody else ever came. So I'm sitting there, there's just literally nobody came, so all by myself. Now, to this day, I don't exactly remember how I got from one room to the other, but I remember hearing some noise in the room next to me. And like any curious tweener might do, I left the room, and I walked into the, to the other room, and I walked into a prayer meeting with about 12 Methodists who had just experienced this powerful person called the Holy Spirit in recent days. And they were in there praying. Now, I'd really never been to church and certainly had never been into a prayer meeting. But I remember sitting in the room thinking, something's going on here. That was powerful. I couldn't define it, didn't understand it, but these people were talking to somebody powerful and that somebody was in the room with them. I remember thinking, man... I want to I wanna learn how to do this. And a few days later, I went back to the same prayer meeting on a Thursday night in the context of this prayer meeting, people praying and calling to God. Now I can look back because I, I have perfected the language of Christianese now. So I can, I can look back and offer a Christianese example of what was happening in that room because they were like in a travailing spirit of intercession. <laughs> you know, they were going after it. 
And the Shekinah glory of God was descending in the place. But a few days later, it's where I got born again in a prayer meeting. Caught it, right? They were, they were not just praying some stoic, emotionless, King James slanted prayer, but they were communicating with God, and it, man, it, it stirred my heart. I believe these disciples saw Jesus engaging his father in power, and they wanted it. And they were being offered an invitation out of a religious system of prayer into a relational prayer with the God of the universe. And they saw something they wanted, like this 12-year-old boy at that time saw something I wanted. One of the great ways to get excited about prayer in your own life is get around people who know how to pray. Go to a prayer meeting where people are, are just connecting with God and just sit in the room. You don't have to say a word, just sit in the room. I'll guarantee you, you're going to catch something. Many of us aren't excited about prayer because we've never been in a place where that kind of prayer was happening. And you felt the connectivity and the power of God just in the room. Let me encourage you. Is it any wonder the enemy wants to keep us out of prayer meetings? Is there any wonder that we prioritize at such a low level because the enemy knows this kind of prayer is caught, not taught. And once you get in the room, you're going you're gonna to want it. You're going to want to connect with God that way. One of the early church fathers, by the name of Tertullian, who, who wrote extensively around 175 A.D., so not too long after Christ had passed in the scene, even um, in, the, in the early, early church. And he was a prolific writer, apologist, polemist who wrote against early heresies of the day. He recognized something was happening amongst the people of God, even the Jews. This is what Tertullian wrote so long ago. He said, Jesus brought in a new order and method of praying and gave his disciples some instructions and directions concerning it. Much better than what the Jews had ever known. So Tertullian observed early on in watching this dramatic shift of the Jewish people into this relationship with God, something that they had never known that Jesus was inviting them into. It was amazing. See, the word prayer for us, who've been in the church for a long time, has kind of become a diluted and a common word. We've lost sight of really what it means. We, we, we throw the word prayer around so arbitrarily, right? Oh, I'll, I'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. Our prayers are with you. How many other times do we use that phrase as a cliche, but we never pray? We just say a person shares their need and, well, I'll be praying for you. How many of you would say you just told a bold-faced lie? How many times have you just flat out lied to that person because you never pray? I, raise, I can raise both hands up and both feet, right? Not condemning you, but just recognizing the cliche that's become and the dilution of the very word itself. So when something becomes very diluted, it's not what? Potent. And if something's not that potent, you're not going to want to be around it. That's why we don't come to prayer meetings because it's just, it's, just, it's, just, it's just diluted. It's not, it's not potent anymore. I, like, I don't know about you, but I, the, the older I get, the more strong I like my flavors. I want my sweet to be sweet. I want my hot to be hot. I want my sour to be sour. I don't know, just me. I like, I like extreme tastes, potent. That's gonna, I don't like bland food. 
I first married my wife, she was the queen of bland. I mean, her food that she liked was just bland. It literally had no taste to it. No taste to it. So she'd eat it and be totally fine, but I'd have to add, you know, the, the salt, the pepper, the jalapenos, the habaneros, the Tabasco, just load that sucker up with, with some flavor. So, honey, you need some flavor. Over the years, she's kind of migrated up now. Recently, she actually put black pepper on her food, sprinkled it. I said, my, look at that. It's amazing. But normally, bland is not exciting. But potent, we're attracted to, aren't we? We like things that are strong and, and flavorful. And that's what prayer was meant to be. So what is, in, in this kind of prayer, what happens to us? So if it's a, if it's a prayer that's called, if it's, a, if it's a prayer that's exciting, that means it's, it's when you begin to do it, you're going to want to do it what? Again, you're going to actually do it more. It's, it's actually going to be a good experience. I don't know about you, but if I have a bad experience, I don't sign up to do it again. Or if I have a boring experience, I'm probably not going to get back in line and do it again. It's not going to draw me back into it. But if it's something good and it's beneficial and I can see the evidence of it, I'm actually going to want to do it and probably do it more because I want to, not because I have to. That's why I say earlier that, that when we talk on prayer, it's never about saying you're not praying enough and you need to pray more. You need to. No, it's not about that at all. It's about, it's about this invitation God has given us. And it's actually good. And once you take a bite and once you do it, you're going to see how wonderful it is and you're going to see the fruit in your life. So what is really happening to us, if I, if I can say metaphysically, what is happening to us when we pray? Because something is happening to us when we pray in this manner or we start engaging God. Now, I had a Greek professor um, when I was in graduate school. His name was Dr. French Arrington. The guy spoke probably... 12 or 13 languages, and he was, a, he, was a, he was a preeminent Greek scholar. Well, why is that important? Well, because the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. That was the language of the, of the New Testament. So to really understand it, you, know, you get into the native language. And he, and he understood the nuances of the Greek language. Now, you don't have to speak Greek now, fortunately, because all the Bible helps that are out there. But imagine it this way. Imagine it. The Greek language being this massive thing and being shoved into a funnel with a really narrow spout and at the other end drips out English. That's basically what happens. You take this colorful, beautiful language, you stick it in a funnel and you condense it down and out drops English. So you can imagine then the nuances of the language is phenomenal when you begin to study it. We have one word for love. They have seven words for love. Not only that, but seven words of love that can be conjugated and translated in numbers of ways to catch the nuances of love. We can't do that, can we? We say, I love French fries. I love my wife. I love Aston Martins. I love my children. You see? That's what causes the dilution of the very word itself. But I remember Dr. Arrington talking about prayer one time as, as, as he began to break down just the, just the word for prayer in Greek, the actual etymology of the word itself, prosukomai, and it, and, and, and it literally means, if you break it up in its, in its constituent parts, it carries with it the idea of the word meaning towards or, or exchange or to wish for. So what's actually happening when you pray in essence is this. To interact with the Lord by switching human wishes, desires for his wishes and desires as he imparts faith. Now think about it for a second. 
So when you pray, what's happening in you is you are giving your desires to him and he is giving his desires to you. Therefore, his desires become your desires. Hear that? And desire is an incredible motivator, much better than shame and condemnation. Would you agree? Would you say desire is a greater motivator than guilt? Man, absolutely, right? So then prayer becomes the mechanism by which you take on God's desires. They become you desire and you begin doing things because you want to, not because you have to. And that is the fabric of any good relationship, isn't it? That I want to be with you because I want to be with you, not because I have to be with you. And this is how God designed it for us. Not some arduous, difficult task, but something we actually want to do. But that want to comes from prayer in which this exchange takes place. So what does prayer change? Does change happen around you or in you? Where's the predominant change taking place? What does prayer really change? You, right? You change. Now, yes, prayer changes things, but I dare say the biggest thing prayer changes is you, not your situation. Because when you change, guess what does change oftentimes? Your situation. But it begins out of this desire. It speaks to relationship. You see? This is what we have been invited into with prayer. And I, and I dare say there's probably some of us in this room that, have, that haven't, had, haven't had that happen before. You know, you've, you've, you've prayed, but you've never really prayed like that or you never really got like that. It's like trying to describe to somebody what it's, that, that's never, ever in their entire life eaten a piece of cheesecake. Yeah, they don't know, Right? I went for a number of years as a kid. I would never eat cheesecake because I thought it was just cheese. But I remember somewhere on the way, maybe it was 13 years old, somewhere on the way, I mean, I, I finally took a bite of cheesecake and I thought, well, good, yes. Yes, I have forfeited so many years of not eating cheesecake. But trying to describe somebody something that, that they never really had is difficult to do, isn't it? If you, haven't, if you haven't tasted what I'm talking about, some of you have never really tasted it before. Some of you maybe have tasted it, but it's been so long, you're just like, man, I want to I get back to that. I want to I have this experience, this, this engagement with God. Because the problem, if we're not having this ongoing devotion to this kind of prayer, what happens to us? We slump back into our own desire, and we start chasing that, and we haven't made the exchange. See why prayer is so important. Prayer is, is essential in us walking out a, a victorious, powerful Christian life because I don't know about you, but we need the continual exchange, don't we? Because you know what the Bible teaches us in Romans 12? It says, don't be what? Conformed to this world. What's the world always trying to do? To conform you. How many of you live in the world? Everybody come up. We, we live in the world, don't we? If you, if you said no to that, we'll have some psychotherapy for you at the end. You actually live in the world. You really do. You, you walk around the world all the time. You watch the world. You listen to the world. You read the world. You're, you're in the fishbowl of the world. 
And it wants to conform you to its type of oxygen, oxygenated water. But God says, no, I need to shift your desires. And if this isn't a regular part of who you are, by default, you are going to go back to your own desires. And that's what you're going to pursue. And that's what I'm going to pursue. The only thing that changes that is me being in his presence through prayer. Individually, collectively, and corporately. Do you realize as we were singing worship, that's also prayer to us that? Usually you're praying. Some of those songs are nothing more than prayers. You were singing prayers. I hope you're praying them. If you're just, you know, reading the words, well, that's not really praying. But if you're singing those to the Lord, what are you doing? Yeah. What is worship? Worship is nothing more than prayer. You're talking to the Lord just in song. I pray with my spirit. I sing with my spirit. Right? It's, 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 it's part of engaging God in this. And what I would like all of us to begin to catch and increase in our life is this thing called, man, I am... I am called into this, but there's so many things that hinder this from happening. The devil doesn't want you praying. The devil doesn't want you talking to Jesus because he knows something's going to happen to you when you begin to do that. There's going to be a swapping of desires. Let me give you really quick just, just, a, just a few thoughts on why be devoted to prayer. I may not get through all these, but just to, just to call, why, why is, it, is, it, is it stressed so much in Scripture? Obviously, number one, because it's our responsibility as Christ followers. Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Again, devoted to prayer. Same word. Paul says, pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says, pray continually. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word responsibility, that does not necessarily bring a lot of warm fuzzies, right? When you hear the word responsibility, is that a, is that a smiley word or like a, it's just a straight line, hmm, responsibility? Because when you hear the word, you kind of think of work, don't you? Sometimes when we hear the word responsibility, we associate that word with something rigid, something inflexible, something dry. I don't want any more responsibilities. But can I offer us tonight that some of the greatest things in our life that bring us the greatest joy are associated with responsibility. Marriage, parenting, the career you want to be a part of. All those things what require what? Responsibility. So shift your thinking on responsibility. Sometimes responsibility ultimately is what is going to bring into your life the things that bring the greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment. But don't be scared of the word responsibility. It is the invitation into something very fulfilling, very meaningful, and very deep. So we pray because it's our responsibility. So we just need to do it, but do it in the right way. Number two, this is because we are promised that God hears us. It's not some pointless activity. We are promised that when we talk to God, he actually listens to us. Psalm 34, 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. That the Lord hears them. The Lord hears you when you pray. That's why when Jesus said, say, it's easy to think when you pray and just use the word God. Well, God's kind of a big and God's kind of busy. But when you pray our Father, well, what father's not going to listen to the cries of their children? Yes, fathers listen to their children. This is what they saw Jesus doing, talking to their dad. 
But for many of us, one of the hindrances to prayer is that we don't relate to God properly. Maybe for lots of different reasons. I love this passage in Galatians 4 and 6. It says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That the spirit of God inside of us enables us to come to God, not some, you know, Bette Miller or Barbara Streisand, God is watching you from a distance kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's Father God. And we are His sons and we are His daughters and He is actually good and He, and he actually hears us when we, when we call out. He's actually relational. His, in His presence, there really is fullness of joy. There, there is comfort. There is healing. There really is a righteous right hand of God who can come and touch our life. He really does exist. And some of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been comforted by this God before. He's good at it and he loves it, but many of us don't relate to him properly because we don't see him as father. Because maybe it's, we had a, a bad heaven, maybe a bad earthly father that abused us or all kind of psychological hangups or maybe you didn't have a dad in your life ever and you were just abandoned by him. I don't know. There's a, all kind of issues that sometimes causes us to, to have a hard time when we hear the word father because we don't have good memories of our father. But don't let your bad memories keep you from how good God is because he is a good father and he actually does hear us. Number three, because we need to hear from God. Now that sounds very elementary, but how many of you think you need to hear from God? Now, here's an untruth that some of us have bought into that A.W. Tozer points out. He says this, this is an, an, an untruth. A silent God suddenly began to speak in a book, and when the book was finished, lapsed back into silence again forever. Hear that? A silent God suddenly began to speak in a book we call the Bible. And when the book was finished, he went back and just gave us a Bible, and that's all we need. Is the Bible important? Yeah, but God didn't quit speaking to you just because the Bible was completed. God can actually speak to you without quoting an exact verse of Scripture. He really can. Because sometimes the Bible doesn't tell me exactly what to do in a modern-day context. It gives me principles and wisdom and truth but God's relational he's he's there God is actually still speaking and he wants to come alongside us I remember I went through a time in ministry probably like 2002 and I used to I, I was um had no idea what I was doing trying to start a church man and just I mean dumb as a post and making I mean just didn't know anything and I remember just begging God I'm begging God I said, Lord, give me somebody. If I could just give me a paw, I could crawl up in his lap and he'd tell me what to do. Just, Lord, give me a mentor. Give me a coach. Just somebody that can help me, you know? I mean, I really was just asking God. And, and I remember I went through a series of relationships thinking that was the person. And I realized it wasn't the person. It actually messed me up. I kept looking, looking, looking. I'll never forget. We were, um, I was walking through the sanctuary one time. From one end of the, not this building, but it was another church. I was, I was cutting through from one end to the other. And I walked in the, I walked in the door and I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to bother to turn on, on the light. I'm just going to, I'm just going to like cut across. 
Well, in the dark, you know, you can get a little bit off track. And there was a music monitor that was kind of sitting on the floor, you know, kind of like a, like a box that was a, a, a kind of a speaker. I'm just kind of walking around along, and I, and I hit that monitor at, at full stride, pitch black. All I remember was going basically airborne. And I, and I came down, and I just rolled over, thinking I'm, I'm going to die here in this dark sanctuary. Nobody's going to know where I am. It's going to be death by speaker and death by idiocy for not turning the, not, not turn the light on. So I, I'm, you know, laying there on the floor and thinking I didn't, I didn't turn the light on. And I just, I wasn't hurt, but I was, my pride was hurt more than anything. And I was laying there thinking to myself, you know, Lord, I, why, I, sh- I should have turned the light on. And the Lord spoke to me just out of the blue and my heart said, he said, he said, you need me to guide you. And this is what, this is what he said. He said, very clearly, he said, you're, you have made an idol of somebody else. You're trying to find somebody else to do what I want to do for you. It was just clear. As, and, and I had made an idol of my pursuit of trying to find somebody to mentor me and coach me. And is there something wrong with mentors? No. Coaches, no. But you can idolize them above God himself. God actually wants to be in that position. He'll use people, but he wants to be in that number one spot. And it was in that moment in time God helped me begin to see to quit looking into someone else for what God wanted to do. Lay on the floor. After run over a speaker, God, God spoke. See, when God speaks to us in prayer or prophetically, it's not always about doctrine. Is doctrine important? Yes. But it's oftentimes about direction. Direction. How many want direction in your life? Yes, Lord, direction, please. Joel 2.28 says, It will come about this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see vision. What's going on there? What are they dreaming about? What kind of visions are happening? What's being imparted? Not doctrine. That doctrine is important, we believe, but no, God's actually given him, his people directions. And we ask him and we pray and we wait. Psalm 38, 15. I wait for you. We sing about that. I wait for you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord, my God. It's in the book of Jeremiah. He began to say, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter to the full day. Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. Or this is the relationship God promises to give us direction if we come and we wait upon him. He will speak to our heart and lead us in the paths of righteousness. One of the great attributes of God. So I'm not only a father, I'm also a shepherd. Who can quote the 23rd Psalm? For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. What's God doing? He's leading us through all kinds of dangerous territory. There's still waters. There's a shadow of death. There's a presence of enemies. There's things that happen, but, this, but God actually leads us. And his sheep know his voice. We need direction. I'll guarantee you, if we're not spending time in this kind of prayer, we're going to do a lot of wandering around. Now, yeah, you may make a good decision here and there. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. But by and large, you're going to be missing. You're going to be missing the influence and the direction of God. And how does that look? It comes out of relationships. Most of our decisions are made out of little impulses or little 
inclinations. I mean, most of us don't make every single decision in life by making a list of pros and making a list of cons and, and watching four episodes of Dr. Phil and trying to see what Oprah says or what's Ellen saying about it. I mean, you know, that's not typically how we're making. I hope to God that's not how you're making most of your decisions. Most decisions come by what? The still, quiet voice of our, of our heart. And if Jesus is influencing our heart, that's what's going to influence us down the path of righteousness for his namesake. It comes, it's, it's, it's born out of relationship. God is probably not going to send you a letter with exact GPS con of coordinates on where to go and how to get there. It's going to come through the natural means of your decision-making process, which is what? Thoughts and intentions and motivations and inclinations and impulses. And that's how we make all of our decisions typically. The ones that matter, like who we marry. Did you really make a list of pros and cons before you married the person that you married or who, who you fell in love with? Probably not. Your heart just did that, right? Just like fell into love. Do you realize you can fall in love with the wrong person? Some of you have actually done that before and lived to tell about it, right? Yeah, it can happen. You want the Holy Spirit influence in your heart. That's where, that's the seat of decision-making. It's not some algorithm that God's going to give you to coordinate all your decisions. It's a, it's a relationship that he's speaking to your, to your heart. Number four, because we need strength in temptation. We need strength in temptation. Does it, do we experience temptation? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Love this verse, one of the first ones I've memorized. You need this as a teenager big time, but you need the rest of your life. But remember this, that temptations that come into your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it. You see that? I like this because it says he will show you. He will show you. Now, if you are in a non-residential building, a commercial building, that catches fire, perhaps you've gone to a movie theater, sometimes the person will come up and say, look around the room and find what? Find, like, know where the exits are so you can get out. So if a fire breaks out or the power goes out, what are you going to be able to do? Find a way of escape. So the promise of God is this. He's not going to let a temptation overwhelm you to the point of where you can't resist, but he will provide a way of escape. He will show you. But even in that way of escape, it depends on relationship because he will show you. It's not a map. It's not a big exit sign on the door. Or it's God will show you if you're listening to him. But some of us end up in temptation and we're not looking for the way of escape. We're not looking to him. You got to be looking for a way of escape to find a way of escape. How do you find the way of escape? He will show you. There's no situation, no temptation you'll ever be in that the Lord will not provide for you a way of escape. But he will show you. Not it will show you. Not the map will show you. Not the exit sign will show you. He himself will show you. And perhaps you've had some testimonies where he did just, just that. Number five, and we'll kind of land pretty quick here. Because we need to overcome our own wills. Because we need to overcome our own wills. And this has to do with that idea of being in prayer that our desire and our will is exchanged for what his desires are in his will for our life. It's the divine persuasion that God does in our hearts. It's the, it's the overcoming and the wrestling of our will. Anybody ever had a problem with your own will? 
Does any of your, you know, want to have issues? Some of my want to's are not very sanctified. Some of the things that I will to do and I want to do are not exactly what God would have me do. Jesus himself, son of God, fully God, fully human, struggled with this very thing, didn't he? Where did he work out the struggle? In prayer. Where do we see the struggle manifesting itself? Where? In the garden of Gethsemane. Think about that. Jesus entered into this enormous battle with his own will. But in Matthew 26, 39, what did he pray? He said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup of suffering from me. Yet, but Lord, not what I want, but what? What you want. See, God understands the struggle of our will. Where should the wrestling match happen? In prayer. God can handle it when you say, God can handle it when I tell him, Lord, I don't want to do this. God's not going to get offended by that because Jesus did it. That's not even sin because Jesus did it. God can handle it if you carry the struggle to him. If it's any consolation to us that Jesus probably didn't want to go to the cross, humanly speaking, because he was human. I don't always want to go to the cross. I don't always want to do the things that God wants me to do. It's not natural for me. Is it natural for you to turn the other cheek? Is it natural for you to love your enemies? Is it natural for me to pray for my persecutors? It's not natural for me to go the extra mile to make sure the sun doesn't go down on my anger, to love my neighbor as myself. I have a strong will. How about you? And quite often my will is, is, is contrary to God's will. I need my will to be, to be conformed. I remember a time uh, years ago in our uh, church, there was a, there was a uh, situation where, uh, where somebody hurt me tremendously and, and um, spread some rumors and ultimately really was a, it was a bad situation that caused a lot of people to leave the church. And, um, I, you know, just it was, a, it was a mess. And I remember my, my, my heart was ravaged because of the situation. I felt myself angry at this man. And I just, just sometimes... You know, you have to work to forgive people, right? And I'll never forget the Lord began to speak to my heart. I knew I had to deal with this cancer in my, in my, in my heart. And I knew I, I needed to go to this guy and really ask him for forgiveness because a lot of what happened was stuff that I caused as well. And I knew that guy was like, well, I can't go there. I just can't, I can't, I can't walk. I mean, this is a guy that literally that led almost a coup that tried to have me ousted and fired. This was a bad, a bad dude, you know, as far as I was concerned. But I remember the Lord said, no, you, I, you have to go. I said, Lord, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I remember I, I knew I, I, had to, I had to go to his house. So I, you know, sent him an email. I didn't have the courage to call. So I sent him an email. I said, can I, can I drop by the house? He said, yes, you can come by. And I'll never forget that morning going to his house. I pulled in the driveway. And I'm not one of these people that just run to conflict. I mean, some people thrive in conflict. I don't thrive in conflict. So I, I got the car and I was just sick. I actually vomited on his azalea. I mean, I was, I was that tormented by this. I actually felt a little bit good about that, actually. You know. but, but I felt, I was just, I was so sick. And I remember knocking on the door, you know, walking literally into like this lion's den. And they, you know, they opened the door, he and his wife. And I mean, if, if looks could kill, if icicles were sharp, I mean, it was just, it was, I mean, I walked straight in. But I, I tell you, as God is my witness, the moment I stepped over into that house, the grace of God hit me unbelievably powerful and gave me a compassion and a mercy for them 
and I was able to sit with them for two hours and share my heart, and everything wasn't fully reconciled, but, but, but God showed up in such power as, as his will was exchanged for my will, as we step in, as we work these things out in his presence. You see, we can't trust our own will, can we? We can't trust the desires. The Bible says, don't put any confidence in your flesh, but boast in the Lord, don't boast in yourself. Now, an extreme example to this that kind of makes the point, um, is it possible for a human being to become addicted to a substance that's killing him or her? Is it possible for a, a person to become addicted to a substance and that substance the whole time is killing them physically? Is that possible? Of course it is, right? Now, think about what's going on there, right? You have a desire to do something that's killing you. What does that tell you about your, uh, your desires? Can you trust them? That your body would actually tell you to keep doing something that's killing it? Therefore, can you trust every impulse, every inclination of your own heart? No, it can't be trusted. That's why we don't want to boast in our flesh. We want to put our boast and our confidence in the Lord. We can trust Him. And the more we are in His presence, more under the influence we're going to come and our desires are going to begin to change. How was Jesus able to do what he did? Because he stayed in communion with who? The Father. What he heard the Father say he did, he stayed in communication and he was able to do it and resist every temptation. Because he stayed in what? Relationship and influence. And then when there was a struggle of the will, where did he take the struggle? To the wife, to the friend at work, to the unsaved neighbor? <laughs> That's not where you want to go get your advice from. He took his complaint, took his grievance, took his hardship straight to the God. And God came and the exchange was done. And he was able to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. He saw beyond it and saw what good was coming of it. Let me get these last two fast. Because we need help what lies ahead. We need help for what lies ahead. None of us can predict the future, can we? We need him. Psalm 25, 4 through 5. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Man, that's a, that's a, that's a powerful prayer to pray, isn't it? Lord, show me, show me, show me, show me. Reveal to me. Show me your heart earnestly desire spiritual gifts, seeking God continually. Some of the biggest mistakes that I've made in my life, and there's great biblical examples. Joshua himself made some big faux pas because he didn't take a few moments and inquire of the Lord. Men lost their lives in the battle of Adai. He entered into a diplomatic relationship with the Gibeonites who deceived him, you know, and ultimately it would, would really prevent the nation of Israel from ultimately occupying the land because it was such a, such a snare that was there. We need to know and ask God to prepare us to help us for what lies ahead. A spirit of discernment. Number seven. We'll end right here. Because, and this is, this is the crazy thing, because unbroken communion with God is possible. Isn't that crazy? Because unbroken communion with God is actually possible. Is that true? Is it really possible, you think, to live minute by minute in the presence of God? 
That's why prayer life doesn't have to become so rigid. And you have to take this form and this posture you know, and start breaking out in King James when you pray. Right? It doesn't require that. It doesn't even require a physical posture. Sometimes it's helpful to kneel down and lay fat, but it is possible to pray continually. Paul says, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? You just talk to God. Lord, what do you think about that? I find myself praying often. One of, one of the biggest prayers I pray that I talk to the Lord about all the time, I say, Lord, Lord, give me your heart and give me your words. Because what I do for a living involves a lot of words. Lord, give me, give me your heart and give me your words. Because I want my words to come out of your heart. I said, praying that constantly, Lord, what do you, what do you want? And just, just talking to God about just little things. He's, he's, he's with us. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And if, and if we can shed, if we can shred off our religiosity when it comes to prayer and really begin to experience the relational aspect of what he's called into, we're going to find out that a vibrant prayer life is not dependent upon if you can get your hour in in the morning. Well, if an hour is good, then I guess two hours is better. Well, if two hours are better, that means three hours must be best. Do you see how the trick of religion works? That it, then it's just this thing we've got to do. It becomes laborious and hard. But if he's a friend and he's journeying with me and I'm talking to him and I'm fellowshipping with him, I don't have to find some position somewhere. I don't have to get the lotus position, cross my legs and empty my mind, set one dot on the wall and start chanting. He's just here. He's there. Talk to him. Well, what do you think about this? Well, give me your heart on this. Holy Spirit, influence me in this decision. Help me wait upon you. Help me not to be impulsive. And then you begin to step into that. But what I recommend, how do you, how do you start? How do you, all right, Lord, I, I want to begin doing that. I'm just going to give you some advice that worked for me that I just sort of fell into. Purpose in your heart to get around people who know how to pray and that are praying. Let that be a first step for you. Just don't even, don't even try. Just, just get around it a little bit. Get around the aroma. Get around the oven when the lasagna is cooking and all of a sudden you're upstairs and you smell something. What happens when you begin to smell something upstairs in the oven? I know when my kids start cooking chocolate chip cookies. Can you imagine that smell? They're up late. I like to get in bed early. The older I get, the earlier I get in bed. But you know what will get me out of bed? Oh, I'm being called downstairs. I will get out of my comfortable bed. I will get out of my little situation. I'll go to the, I'll go to the extra effort to put some clothes on. I'll do, I'll go and make a trip by the, by the bathroom. I'll do all the things I need to do. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to go downstairs. What motivated because the aroma of something I had not eaten yet caught my attention. And I promise you, I guarantee you, if you get around the aroma of people who have learned how to pray like this, you're going to whiff it and you're going to want to partake of it yourself and then you yourself in turn will become that aroma for somebody else. I don't care where you got to go, find a prayer meeting, ask somebody that you know, hey, where can I go and pray? And just go and sit. But that's my suggestion. Hmm. Try it and I'll guarantee you it'll work. Amen?